invite you to turn your Bibles this afternoon to 1 John chapter 2. We're coming this afternoon to the second part of Article 29 of the Confession, which tells what are the marks of true Christians. And in connection with that, we're first going to read from 1 John chapter 2, beginning at verse 28, and reading to the end of chapter 3. 1 John chapter 2, beginning at verse 28. This is God's holy word. And now, little children, abide in him, so that when he appears we may have confidence and not shrink back from him in shame at his coming. If you know that he is righteous, you may be sure that everyone who practices righteousness has been born of him. See what kind of love the Father has given to us, that we should be called children of God, and so we are. The reason why the world does not know us is that it did not know him. Beloved, we are God's children now, and what we will be has not yet appeared. But we know that when he appears, we shall be like him, because we shall see him as he is. And everyone who thus hopes in him purifies himself as he is pure. Everyone who makes a practice of sinning also practices lawlessness. Sin is lawlessness. You know that he appeared in order to take away sins, and in him there is no sin. No one who abides in him keeps on sinning. No one who keeps on sinning has either seen him or known him. Little children, let no one deceive you. Whoever practices righteousness is righteous as he is righteous. Whoever makes a practice of sinning is of the devil, for the devil has been sinning from the beginning. The reason the Son of God appeared was to destroy the works of the devil. No one born of God makes a practice of sinning, for God's seed abides in him, and he cannot keep on sinning because he has been born of God. By this it is evident who are the children of God and who are the children of the devil. Whoever does not practice righteousness is not of God, nor is the one who does not love his brother. For this is the message that you have heard from the beginning, that we should love one another. We should not be like Cain, who was of the evil one and murdered his brother. And why did he murder him? Because his own deeds were evil and his brother's righteous. Do not be surprised, brothers, that the world hates you. We know that we have passed out of death into life because we love the brothers. Whoever does not love abides in death. Everyone who hates his brother is a murderer, and you know that no murderer has eternal life abiding in him. By this we know love. He laid down his life for us, and we ought to lay down our lives for the brothers. But if anyone has the world's goods and sees his brother in need, yet closes his heart against him, how does God's love abide in him? Little children, let us not love in word or talk, but in deed and in truth. By this we shall know that we are of the truth and reassure our heart before him. For whenever our heart condemns us, God is greater than our heart, and he knows everything. Beloved, if our heart does not condemn us, we have confidence before God. And whatever we ask, we receive from him because we keep his commandments and do what pleases him. And this is his commandment, that we believe in the name of his son, Jesus Christ, and love one another just as he commanded us. Whoever keeps his commandments abides in God and God in him. And by this we know that he abides in us, by the spirit whom he has given us. This is the holy and infallible Word of God. Let's turn also to Article 29 of our Confession. Article 29, page 186 in the Forms and Prayers books, uh, page 866 in the back of the Psalter hymnals. Article 29, page 186 
began reading about halfway down the article, having already considered the, paragra- the paragraphs regarding the marks of the true church, we now turn our attention to the marks of the true Christians. This is what we confess in Article 29. As for those who are of the church, we can recognize them by the distinguishing marks of Christians, namely by faith. And by their fleeing from sin and pursuing righteousness once they have received the one and only Savior, Jesus Christ. They love the true God and their neighbors without turning to the right or left. And they crucify the flesh and its works. Though great weakness remains in them, they fight against it by the Spirit all the days of their lives. Appealing constantly to the blood, suffering, death, and obedience of the Lord Jesus in whom they have forgiveness of their sins through faith in him. This the church of Christ does confess and believe throughout the world. Dear congregation of the Lord Jesus Christ, how do we know? How do we know that we are Christians? How do we know whether we are true Christian believers? Answering this question is what lies at the heart of John's words here in his first epistle. For this first letter, you may know, was written in the wake of church division. A church split has just taken place. And those who left the church have apparently been claiming that they're the real Christians. And so they've been sowing seeds of doubt in the hearts of those who have remained. And so the apostle John now takes pen to paper to reassure his readers that they really are the children of God. And for the Apostle John, being a true Christian really boils down to two things. That we know our gospel privileges and that we live in light of those gospel privileges. The Christian is a child of God, says John, and as a child of God, the true Christian bears the marks of being a child of God. And so what John is pressing upon us here really dovetails quite well that we've been considering throughout our series of the Beatitudes. Because just as Jesus has been doing the Beatitudes, John also is, is painting a portrait for us, a, a picture of what the, the true Christian, what the true believer looks like. And this is the aim of Article 29 of our confession as well. Having already set forth what are the marks of the true church, the Our confession now sets forth what are the marks or what are the characteristics of the true Christian believer. For since the church is composed of members, writes P. Whitey Young, it follows with undeniable logic that the characteristics of the true church should be reflected also in the life of its membership. And we learn, boys and girls, here in the second part of this article is that the true Christian is recognizably redeemed. The true Christian can, can be seen from a mile away. As Jesus says in Matthew chapter 7, every good tree necessarily bears good fruit. And so Jesus said, therefore, you will know them by their fruits. True Christians are recognizably redeemed. And so the sense of this article is that when you examine the true believer, there, there should be no need for a magnifying glass. You shouldn't need to get out a magnifying glass to examine the branches to see whether any good and true fruit is springing forth from them. But the fruit should be clearly evident to all. True Christians are 
recognizably redeemed. They're known by these distinguishing marks, as our confession says. You should be able to spot them from a mile, from a mile away. And that's what John is essentially showing us here in his first epistle. John is showing us that true believers are recognizably redeemed. When you look at them, you can tell that, that they're abiding in Christ and that the Spirit of Christ is, is abiding in them. And so the Apostle John is therefore summoning us to live in light of who we are. He says, see what kind of love the Father has given to us that we should be called children of God, and so we are. And so we are, says John, children of God. The reason that the world does not know us is that it did not know him. But beloved, we are God's children now, he says. And what we will be has not yet appeared, but we know that when he appears... We shall be like him because we shall see him as he is. True Christians are God's children. That's who they are now. And that's who they always will be. And if you back up into chapter 2, you'll notice that who we are has an impact on what we do. In light of who we are, John says, and now, little children, abide in him. Abide in Christ. So that when Christ appears, you may have confidence and not shrink back from him in shame at his coming. For if you know that he is righteous, you may be sure that everyone who practices righteousness has been born of him. And this, you could say, is really the the first mark belonging to the true Christian believer. As our confession says, as for those who are of the church, we can recognize them by the distinguishing marks of Christians. The first mark being faith in the Lord Jesus Christ. This Mark writes, P.Y. Young really sets its stamp on all the rest. For as the true church, in obedience to Christ, proclaims the word of God, so the true Christian will respond to that word in faith. For this is what God plainly requires of all who hear the gospel. Those who are true and proper members of his congregation, says to Young, learn to live by faith. Faith is the primary mark out of which all the other marks come into being. Faith, you could say, is the, is the fountainhead from which all the other marks belonging to believers flow. As we confess in Lord's Day 7, faith is, is not only a knowledge and conviction that all that God reveals as word is true, but true faith is a wholehearted trust in the Savior. It is a continued leaning upon the Savior, a deep-rooted assurance that that the Holy Spirit has worked in our hearts, that not only others, but, but we too have had all our sins forgiven, and that God has granted to us also everlasting life. And all this is simply to say that the true Christian rests in the Savior. The true believer abides in the Lord Jesus Christ. And John shows us here that the true believer does so in such a way that the thought of Christ's second coming is not a source of fear and shame, but it's a source of overwhelming joy and great confidence. He says that, that for unbelievers, the coming of, of Christ, the second coming of Christ, evokes that, a sense of shame and, and fear, a sense of, of unpreparedness. But not those who belong, who are abiding in the Lord Jesus Christ. For those who abide in him, for those whose faith is in him, that day is not a day of overwhelming shame, but a day of overwhelming joy and delight at the prospect of 
of seeing God as he is, of seeing him face to face. Isn't this we confess in Lord's Day 19? There the question is asked of the believer, how does the second coming of Christ, his coming to judge the living and the dead, comfort you? And to that question, the believer's answer is given. In all my distress and persecution, with uplifted head, not with a drooping head, not in shame, but with uplifted head, I turn my eyes to the heavens and confidently await as just judge the very one who has already stood trial in my place and has removed the whole curse from me. All his enemies and mine he will cast in everlasting punishment. But me and all his chosen ones he will take along with him into the joy and glory of heaven. This is the confidence that characterizes every believer. Faith in Christ is is the dividing line between the true Christian and, and the false Christian. Do you believe in the Lord Jesus Christ this afternoon? Have you received him by grace through faith? Are you resting in the Savior? Are you abiding in him? If you are, then you will necessarily be doing the second thing that John sets before us, namely, running from sin. This, according to our confession, is the second mark of the true believer. The the recognizably redeemed are those who rest in the Savior and run from sin. As our confession says, as for those who are of the church, we can recognize them by the distinguishing marks of Christians, namely by faith and by their fleeing from sin once they have received the one and only Savior, Jesus Christ. This is what John is likewise setting before us here in verses 3 and following. He says in verse 3 that everyone who hopes in him thus purifies himself as he is pure. And this pursuit of purity is described in terms of of running away from sin in verses 4 through 10 and in terms of reflecting the Savior in verses 11 to 18. Notice, first of all, the call to run from sin. He says, everyone who makes a practice of sinning also practices lawlessness, for sin is lawlessness. And then he says, you know that Christ appeared in order to take away sins, and in him there is no sin. No one who abides in him keeps on sinning, and no one who keeps on sinning has either seen him or known him. John isn't mincing any words here, is he? But John is once again pressing home the reality that that how you live is a reflection of who you are. How you live is a reflection of who you are, whether you are a a child of God or or a child of the devil. So he says, little children, let, let no one deceive you. Whoever practices righteousness is righteous, as he is righteous. But whoever makes a practice of sinning is of the devil. For the devil has been sinning from the beginning. And the reason that the Son of God appeared was to destroy the works of the devil. No one born of God makes a practice of sinning, for God's seed abides in him, and he cannot keep on sinning because he has been born of God. And so John is making crystal clear for us that those who have been born again and those who have thus been adopted into the family of God begin to live in a whole new way. As our confession says, they begin to crucify all the, all the works of the flesh. True Christians are marked by a new resolve to run from sin and to keep sin far from them. 
Just as Joseph ran from the advances of Potiphar's wife, so two believers run from sin whenever temptation presents itself. True Christians follow the example of, of Job who, who made a covenant with his eyes that he would not look with lustful atten- intent upon a woman. Those who are recognizably redeemed take the words of their Redeemer to heart. If your right eye causes you to sin, pluck it out. And if your right hand causes you to sin, cut it off and throw it away. For it is better that you should lose one of your members and that your whole body should be thrown into hell. The first major question the Spirit presses upon us is, are you resting in the Savior? But the second is this, are you taking your sin seriously? Are you taking your sin seriously? As you think about the, the various sins that you're struggling with right now, perhaps you're struggling with the sin of lust or the sin of envy or jealousy. Perhaps you're struggling with the sin of laziness or perhaps you struggle with anger and you're quickly prone to fly off the hand. Whatever the sin may be, are, are you coddling those sins? Are, are you condoning them or, or minimizing them, saying, oh, they're not really such a big deal? Or are you fighting them off as best you can by the power of the Spirit? Are you fleeing from them? Are you crucifying, putting to death the, the works of the flesh? If not, then the Apostle John says you need to be. He's warning us here to quote John Owen, you must always be in the business of killing sin or sin will be in the business of killing you. Are you taking your sin seriously? Perhaps you're hearing these words and you're thinking, well, yes, I, I have been fighting. I have been trying to fight, trying to flee, but I've been failing. Well, if that's you this afternoon, let me, then let me ask you a, a follow-up question. Have, have you asked for help? Are you, will you crucify your pride and ask for help and accountability? No one who abides in Christ keeps on sinning. For the one who keeps on sinning has neither seen him nor known him. Understand this after, afternoon that the apostles' words here are not meant to scare the child of God. But they are meant to stir his conscience. They are meant to convict the heart. They are meant to apply those words that the other Hebrews says elsewhere. Today, if you hear his voice, do not harden your hearts. But look to the Savior and learn from him. For you know that Christ appeared in order to take away sins. And in him there is no sin. For this is the reason the Son of God came, says John. Jesus came to destroy the works of the devil. And so as you run from sin, let this be your confidence and encouragement. Jesus came to destroy the works of the devil. As John says later on in his letter, greater is he who is in you than than he who is in the world. We, of course, recognize that no believer here is who he or she one day will be. But by the grace of God, the true believer is no longer who he or she used to be. And we know that he who has begun a good work in us will bring that work to completion at the day of Christ's coming. Isn't that what 
the Apostle Paul says to Titus in Titus chapter 2, the grace of God has appeared, bringing salvation for all people, training us to do what? To renounce all ungodliness. To renounce all worldly passions. And to live self-controlled, upright, and godly lives in this present age, even as we wait for his appearing. And this brings us to our third consideration this afternoon, the third mark of those who are recognizably redeemed. What does John say in verse 11? He says, this is the message that you have heard from the beginning, from the beginning that we should love one another. Not only do true Christians rest in the Savior and run from sin, but as they rest in the Savior, they also reflect the Savior. As our confession says, they love the true God and their neighbors without turning to the right or to the left. And isn't this precisely what, what Jesus did throughout his sojourn on the earth? He loved the Lord his God. He loved his neighbor as himself. And he never for a moment veered to the right or to the left. But he, but he was resolved to stay upon that straight and narrow path that the Father had set before him. And in so doing, he gave us the perfect example to follow. And this is what John shows us here in verses 11 to 18. He wants us, he warns us that we should not be like Cain who murdered Abel, but rather we should be like Christ who instead of taking life, laid down his own life for his brothers. By this we know love, says John, that Christ laid down his life for us and we ought to lay down our lives for the brothers. For if anyone has the world's goods and sees his brother in need, yet closes his heart against him, how does God's love abide in him? Little children, let us not love in word or talk, but in deed and in truth. In this way, people of God, John calls us to reflect the Savior. Our love for the brothers is a reflection of his love for us. That's the gospel logic of of verse 16. Jesus laid down his life for us, and we ought to lay down our lives for the brothers. The cross, you see, is not only the centerpiece of the Christian faith, writes Ian Hamilton, but the cross is also the pulse beat of the Christian life. We never graduate beyond it. Thus, where love is failing, our great need is not so much to be exhorted to love, but to be reacquainted with the Savior's love for us as evidenced in his selfless sacrifice for sinners. The apostle is summoning us to reflect the Savior by loving one another selflessly and sacrificially. And in this way, the true Christian is recognizably redeemed. He does not turn a blind eye to, to the needs of those around him. But he exudes his love, not only in word or in talk, but in deed as well. True Christians rest in the Savior. True Christians run from sin. True Christians reflect the Savior. But what do they do when they have sadly failed in doing these three things? That's a question that we're all faced with, isn't it? What do we do when we've failed in this regard? For just as the true church on earth never exhaustively or perfectly manifests the glory of God's grace within her rights to young, so also true believers, so long as they are in this life, do not attain to perfection. 
As we confess in Lord's A44, even the holiest of men have but a small beginning of the obedience to which God calls us. And so we recognize that our faith journey from this life to the next is often characterized by weakness and backsliding. Our faith grows weak, our love grows cold, and so we fall back into the old patterns of sin. And so the question that arises in our hearts and minds is, well, what are we to do about that? What do we do then? We've heard the call to rest in the Savior, to run from sin, to reflect the Savior, but what about, what about when we failed? And the answer that our confession gives us, and the answer that the Word of God gives us, is that we are to return. We are to return to the Savior yet again and find renewed assurance in Him yet again. Listen again to how our confession puts it. Though great weakness remains in them, they fight against it by the Spirit all the days of their lives, appealing constantly to the blood, suffering, death, and obedience of the Lord Jesus, in whom they have forgiveness of their sins through faith in Him. What are we to do when we've given into sin yet again? We return to the Savior. We appeal to the blood of Jesus. As the older version of the confession puts it, we, we take refuge again in, in the shed blood of Christ. For in Him all our sins, past, present, and future, have been blotted out once and for all. And that's what John is, is getting at here at the end of chapter 3. John has, has, of course, set the bar pretty high, but being sensitive to the Weakness that still remains in us. What does he say in verses 19 and 20? By this we shall know that we are of the truth and reassure our heart before him. For whenever our heart condemns us, God is greater than our heart. And he knows everything. You see, anticipating that his readers might feel the the weight of all that John has been setting before them. John is sure to reassure them that they should not give in to despair. As they continue to fight against sin and those weaknesses of the flesh, and as they fall short and backslide, they need not give in to despair. And so when John says that God is is greater than our hearts, what John is essentially saying is this, the verdict that ultimately counts is not the verdict that I pass upon myself. But the verdict that ultimately matters is the verdict that, that God passes upon me in the Lord Jesus Christ. That's the verdict that really matters at the end of the day. Not what does my conscience say, but what does God say? Not what does Satan say, but what does God say? What has, what has God declared about me? What has God declared concerning my sin? And so writes Hamilton, we are to appeal from our nagging conscience to the greatness of God as our sufficient Savior and loving restorer of the penitent. John himself must have known what it was to experience a condemning heart, a heart that that accuses of, of all the sins that one has committed. And on the one hand, we recognize that our hearts are partially correct. Apart from the Lord Jesus Christ, we are indeed Guilty before the just God of the universe. But at last John would assure us that we are not apart from Christ, but we are united to Christ. And in Him we can be sure that God's 
verdict will never change. We recognize that the process of of sanctification, of growing in holiness, can be a, a slow and painstaking process. And so that process is, is, is changing. We're, we're growing. But our, our justification never changes. Our status never changes. We're never more or less justified. But our justification, our status before God is secure. In Christ, we can be sure that His verdict concerning us will never change. Though our sins be red as scarlet, Jesus has made them white as snow. And he's buried all our sins in, in the sea of his gracious forgetfulness. He remembers them no more. That's what the prophet Micah says. All our sins God cast into the depths of the sea. You can't swim out and fish them back up again. Satan can't do it either. And so we really finish this afternoon where we began with resting in the Savior. Even when we have Sin yet again, we can always, always, always return to him in repentance and faith, and we can do so with the certainty that he will never turn us away. We can reassure our hearts before him. And in this, our returning to him, in this, our taking refuge in him, we likewise show that we are recognizably redeemed. And so may God grant us the grace to bear these marks, to bear them in increasing measure, to rest in the Savior, to run from sin, to reflect the Savior and to return to Him, to be reassured by Him over and over again till He comes. Amen. Let us pray. Gracious God and Heavenly Father, we come before You and we thank You for the redemption that You have secured for us in the Lord Jesus Christ. That You have not only forgiven us our sins, but You've also begun to renew us by the power of Your Spirit. And you have made us to be recognizably redeemed. Father, we pray that you would help us to grow in these graces. That we would indeed abide in Christ fervently and constantly. That we would rest in him. Grant us grace to run from sin. Grant us your spirit to reflect him. When we have given into sin and fallen back into sin again, may we return to him. And be reassured by him and the knowledge that he will never cast us out. We pray in his name and for his sake. Amen.